This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. If you're a foodie and a sports fan, then this show today is for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. My guest today is a former Emmy Award-winning sports reporter turned chef, restaurateur, and even former contestant on ABC's The Taste and Food Network's Beat Bobby Flay. Today, she is having tremendous success running what's being called one of the best Italian restaurants in Boston's North End. Jen Royal, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Liz. You made me sound very successful. Thank you. Well, I believe that you are as hard as it may be to be a restaurateur. But let's backtrack a little bit. For more than a decade, you were a sports reporter covering Major League Baseball in New York. And then in Boston, you were reporting on all of our professional teams here. What Mm -hmm. did you love about being a sports reporter? I think probably the best answer would be that you were sort of the chosen one. I mean, it's the dream job. There's probably thousands of people who want your job and there's maybe 15 available positions. Yeah. So when you have such an elite position, you really do appreciate it. Yeah. I can think of many, many amazing sports memories in New York, especially between the Red Sox and the Yankees, where (laughs) I honestly, in that very moment, I would stop and say, remember this moment, remember Mm -hmm. who you're talking to, remember where you are. And I tell girls that now who have, you know, sports jobs that aren't very happy. I'm like, that's fine. There are a thousand people who want your job. If you want to give it up and you want to move on, knock yourself out. Yeah, You should really appreciate what you have. And that's probably the best part is, is knowing that you really have one of the elite positions. And then I do miss the camaraderie with some of the guys, like, especially as a female, it's, I don't know, I grew up with two brothers. I always had guy friends. I was never like the best friend to all the girls. I just always knew how to talk to guys. I always knew how to be with the dudes, basically. I kind of miss that, that camaraderie, like walking into a locker room and having a guy throw a sock at my head. Like, I think that's, (laughs) that's, I think that's funny. Because I would pick it up and I would throw it back. Oh my so gosh. So like stuff like that. But, but you know what? I've kept my friendships. I have my friends, you know, with, with former players and because they're former now because we're, we're old. <laughs> it was special for sure. And I don't take any of that for granted. Well, I think it's very interesting. You know, you bring up the whole topic about young female reporters and how you were in the locker room and them throwing the sock at you because still to this day, it's pretty much a male dominated business. Do you think it's that camaraderie that made you a success and an award-winning reporter? Was that the secret ingredient? Yeah. I mean, women used to come up to me and say, hi, what is your secret? How do you do it? And I would say, put your notebook away. Like, go talk to them. You don't have to go up to them and ask them a sports question. You don't have to go up to these players and ask them, you know, about the game. Just ask about their kids. Ask about their, find something in their locker. Like, oh, I love your sunglasses. I have those. Make it up if you have to. (laughs) But you have to earn their trust. I kind of walked away from the game with an enormous amount of secrets that I never told. I was never that person who was like, oh, you told me this? Oh, well, I'm going to write about it or I'm going to squeal. 
you know, I think that you have to also remember that that the athletes are people too. Mm -hmm. They're people. They're not just players. And, you know, they have lives, they have personal lives. And, you know, they really like to have people in their space because it is their space that they can trust. Yeah. And I had some remarkable, remarkable friendships. Well, while still an on-air sports personality, you began flirting with the idea of making a career change. You appeared in ABC's cooking show, The Taste, which was hosted by Anthony Bourdain. And that's where amateur chefs try to hold their own against the pros. Why did you want to go on that show? And what was that experience like? It was amazing. I had my own radio show here in Boston, and I was kind of getting sick of sports. I think like any other position, you just, you hit a wall. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making a ton of money. And my mother would say to me, you better figure this out because I'm not going to keep supporting you. You know, you're 35. And then she would say, Jen, you're 36. And Jen, you're 37. (laughs) Thanks, mom, for the reminder, right? (laughs) I know, great. I noticed that women who didn't have any experience or I would say 5% of the experience I had were getting jobs over me. And it was happening to other women my age. And it wasn't, I don't think it was our age. I think they were cheaper. I remember I did go for one big job and they were like, well, you know too much, but this is not what we're looking for. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. What what are you looking for? Like, (laughs) well, and, and if you're not looking for somebody who knows too much about sports or knows too much about this team, then why am I working so hard to learn more? So that's when I kind of saw things changing. But I had a friend who said to me, you know, there's this TV show coming to Boston. It's called The Taste. You should audition for it. And um, actually, I was a writer for the Boston Herald at the time. I just wanted something different. I waited in line and I cooked something that day. There were thousands of people there and they brought everybody into a room. I believe like 25 people at a time. I just remember the woman coming out after the person walked around the room and had like a literally a 30 second interview with you and then tried your food. And I remember when the woman came out to announce who was moving on, I saw her, my handwriting across the room. I moved on. Then you had another interview the next week and it literally was eight week, ridiculously long process. (laughs) And yet you still went on, right? And you, you were in the final episode. I was in the final episode, but I said, finally, I said to them, you have to let me know. I have a life to plan, you know? And they said, well, we're going to let you know a little secret. They said, you are in a very, very, very small pool to go to Los Angeles for episode one. So I kind of just assumed I made it. I started, you know, I told the Herald, I have to take a leave of absence. I can't do Bruin season and Celtic season. I I, I think I'm going to get this. And I did. So I flew to Los Angeles for episode one. And there were 24 people and eight got eliminated in episode one. And let me make this clear. I told everyone, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll be home tomorrow. <laughs> I will not make it past episode one. I will be home. Everyone's going to make fun of me in Boston and say, you know, she sucks as a sports reporter and she sucks at cooking. And then I have to think of something else to do with my life. <laughs> I was chosen to be one of the 16 to be on Chef Ludo's team. And then the rest is history. And it was, to answer your question, what was it like? It was really, really hard. I bet. Listen, I watch Top Chef. I can't touch any of those people. I don't even know what they're making. I don't know the ingredients. I'm, I'm good. I am okay knowing that I could never even remotely be in a room with any of those Top Chefs. But when I tell you this was really hard, I equate it to being similar 
also, I had to work 10 times harder than everybody else because I literally did not know what I was doing. Oh my gosh. And yet you you were the only non-professional cook left standing, as I understand yeah. it, in that final episode. That's, I mean, kudos to you on that. And then somehow or another, you decide also you're going to take a turn cooking against Bobby Flay on his show on the Food Network. How did that happen? Once you're in the computer system, they just start calling you. Okay. That was not my favorite experience. I did Chopped as well. That was not my favorite experience. In fact, I left Chopped screaming and I said, don't you ever call me again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Those shows were not like the taste. They, They were not. I mean, when you did the taste, the ABC lawyers were there with you all the time. You were wired. You were mic'd. They were listening to you. They were watching you. The taste was really hard. Wow. I tried to keep it simple. You know, I tried to cook what I knew. I didn't try to do anything fancy. It was just a different experience for me. It was very serious. The other two, to me, appeared to be more entertainment. Uh, Okay. So somewhere along the way here, you decide you're going to quit your day job. You're going to go to cooking full time. Yeah. What was that pivot point for you? It was scary for sure. Looking back on it, there were probably a lot of things I could have done different. There were a lot of things that I'm so proud of myself that I didn't do different. There were a lot of things on the table, like maybe you should do this or do this, or maybe you should do it this way or do it this way. Um, Basically, I renovated a nail salon, which looking back on it, if I were to open up another restaurant, which let me make this clear, I never will. (laughs) You should already have a kitchen there, a ventilation system that goes to the roof. You can't just look at a space and go, sure, let's throw some tables in here and throw a kitchen in. It doesn't really work that way. Mm. It was really expensive. I had saved an enormous amount of money being a caterer for this moment. And so I had to put in like a ventilation system that was like $100,000 and that was gone in like two seconds. And that money should have been for something else. The space kept getting smaller. The more things I found out I had to build into the space to meet the health code. It was was a very expensive, crazy process. I mean, the basement where people used to get probably their eyebrows waxed. I mean, I ripped all the doors off, all the walls down and, and built a kitchen. Wow. So there were probably a lot of things that I would have done differently. And I think that's why my attitude as a restaurateur now is the way it is. So everything that I do in this space is very, very personal. I mean, I care way too much. But I also think that leads to your success. It definitely does, but not my mental health. Well, that's probably true, too. I know you've been cooking for your family and friends for years. Your father's Irish and was a KitchenAid salesman, which I find so funny. And your mom's Italian. So what do you love about cooking? Feeding people. I mean, really, that was it. I brought my KitchenAid mixer to college. You know, people were like, look at this girl with her KitchenAid (laughs) mixer. You know, I'm talking like one of those $300, like back then, you know, big KitchenAid mixers. Oh, I got one. I love it. I've never given it up. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) I mean, I was 18 when I got my mixer. I don't know. I think just cooking for people like my, I would always try to find a reason to do it. You know, my mother would have friends over. My parents would have friends over and I I would just start making things. And my mother's like, what are you doing? Cooking? cooking for you. Your, Your friends coming over. Your friends coming over. But I would make a mess. The cleanup was a disaster. It, it wasn't always the greatest like routine because I would just, I don't know, it just was horrible. But mm. I mean, I remember one time I tried to make scallop potatoes in Dixie cups. Do you know what a Dixie cup is? Yes. Yes. And I put them all in the oven. <laughs> oh, no. Like, and all the wax melted. It was a disaster. Oh, my So I mean, gosh. like I have good ideas. 
Maybe execution needed to be worked execution on. Execution <laughs> was born, and I think I was 13 when that happened. Well, then we'll forgive you. Exactly. I think just cooking for people, because most of the people who come to my restaurant are there to celebrate something. Yeah. Or they'll leave a note and say, we've been trying to get in here for weeks. Oh, my God, it's finally here. We're so excited to be here. They write this like in the notes. Finally got a reservation. Can't wait to come. We're so excited. Bringing friends. Like it's everyone is there for something. No one's just like, oh, hey, stumbled upon this place. You know, it's, it doesn't really work that way. I'm curious, who are your chef role models? I don't have any. Ah, interesting. Okay. I know you went to culinary school for a while and you quit after about a month. Why? Because <laughs> it was the most ridiculous experience. <laughs> like, <laughs> they were like, well, today we're going to make souffles. And I was like, okay, I'm never going to make one of these in my life. And then I remember looking at the syllabus and like, I think the next day was bagels. Like, I'm never going to make a bagel. <laughs> just stuff like that. It just, I looked at the whole thing. Listen, there are things I could have stayed and learned, but I don't know if it was worth it. Yeah. Um, I mean, day one, they taught me how to scramble an egg. I mean, I was like, you're joking, right? <laughs> I had already did an omelet challenge with probably one of the best French chefs in the world, which yeah. is Ludo Laferbe in Los Angeles on the taste. I didn't need to learn how to scramble an egg. So I think it was a, I think I was caught in the middle. I think I was a little bit better yeah. than what, uh, some of the things they were teaching. But then I think there were a lot of things I absolutely needed to learn. Well, you probably learned them as you went along. And now you're getting these rave reviews and accolades for table, which you're probably best known for it being a multi-course communal style meal. How did you come up with that concept of prefixed family style meals? And why is that important to you? Okay. Two things. One is terrible. One is great. The first thing is I was catering a job for a woman and her husband was turning 40. And she said, I wish my dining room table was big enough for me to have dinner for 20. Unfortunately, we're just going to have to have like little bites in the living room. And I said, oh my God, that's it. Imagine if everybody had a dining room table that's at 20. That would be amazing. So many people could have these big dinners with their family and friends. So why don't I just open a space that has a table for 20? And mm -hmm. I was going to call it table 20. And then I had friends saying, don't put the 20. People are going to think you can only have 20 people. If you ever want to change it, you're stuck at 20. And then I thought to myself, well, why don't I open up a regular restaurant, but they just sit communal. So I started to read articles and reviews. And the one thing I was noticing in people's reviews was that the appetizer was coming out after the dinner or the servers forgot the appetizer or we waited X amount of time for our table. We had a reservation at 8. We weren't seated till 8.30. I noticed those were like the two biggest things. Hmm. The service wasn't great and people had to wait for their table. And I said, well, how do I avoid that? What if everybody came at the same time and what if everybody ate the same thing? So I said, well, I think this is all going to work out. If I have my table for 20 and they're all eating the same thing and they're all showing up at the same time, then it looks as if according to all of the reviews in the city of Boston for a hundred restaurants that I read <laughs> about, I could avoid the majority of problems. So then I only have to worry about the food. Yeah. Well, speaking of your food, your menu has been described as a, quote, feast of Italian comfort food. I love that description. Mm -hmm. What are your best specialties? Give me one or two. I would say our eggplant. This is the part that I hate. I hate saying, oh, hey, look at me. I'm so great. <laughs> but like I would put our food against anybody in the neighborhoods, not necessarily the concept or all seven courses. 
in terms of there's always going to be something somebody didn't like, or there's going to be something that somebody wouldn't have ordered on the menu. Like, oh, we came out. I really wanted a piece of fish. The menu tonight was shrimp. So like, I understand that. And I'm so thankful and grateful and at times astonished that so many people eat at my restaurant because they're not picking their own food. So they're spending $115 just to sit down and they don't even get to pick what they eat. So that whole part kind of shocks me. But with that being said, if I were to make a chicken parm, an eggplant parm, or a piece of lasagna, I would put that up against Mm. anybody in the neighborhoods. I just don't serve that. But we have this little side menu that if we have any empty seats and somebody walks in the door and says, can I get a table for two? That basically means they have no idea how the restaurant works. They're traveling, they're walking up the street and they're hungry. If I have a couple empty seats, they can grab those two seats and order off a side menu. Got it. That's kind of our newest thing. And then I would say probably our cheese courses. Like I look at other people's like a caprese with like the sliced cheese and the sliced tomato and the basil in between each piece. We don't do any of that. We Mm. get this huge mozzarella ball. We rip it in half. We use beautiful heirloom, colorful cherry tomatoes. We don't use whole basil. We use micro basil. I think just our presentation is like stunning. So Mm. I would say like our cheese courses, our eggplant and our bolognese. We have probably one of the best bolognese's I've ever had. We use short rib, a red wine reduction for probably seven hours. It's it's just outrageous. Well, you're making me hungry now. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, the pandemic was tough for a lot of restaurants all over the world, but you managed to not only survive, but thrive. And in addition to yeah. your restaurant, you opened up your Italian market, Table Mercato, which I think is right next door to the restaurant. Yeah, it's attached. It's attached. And then you have the third business, which is the Table Cafe. You serve homemade yep. gelato and other wonderful things. Look, running one business is tough enough. Three is no easy feat. What does it take to be a successful entrepreneur, whether it's the restaurant industry or any industry for that matter? I don't even know how to explain this, except it doesn't work if I'm not there. Yeah. It just doesn't. I know I've mentioned off air, I'm still in bed. Um, (laughs) Today's my only day off and I am limping, Mm. literally limping. Hmm. but it's all worth it, if that makes any sense. Because mm-hmm. I'll mm-hmm. feel better tomorrow. I'll, I could never go to dinner on a Monday night. If I go do anything with my girlfriends, it has to be a Tuesday. Can't drink too much because I start again work on Wednesday. Um, I'm just older. Things are different. My priorities are different. Mm-hmm. You just have to really be creative. I think if you walked into my cafe, if you walked into my Mercado, your initial reaction, your your eyes explode. Mm. They're just beautifully decorated. There is product everywhere. I am always looking for new product. I mean, I got mad at somebody yesterday because she cut the cake wrong. Presentation is everything. And if you want to be a half Italian female in a male-dominated neighborhood, you have to be better. You have to pay attention to detail. And first of all, let me just say, I don't give a shit what they think about me. I want That came out as if I care. I don't. But I want to be better. I want to be the best. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm the best. I want to make that clear. But I am always paying attention to every single little thing. Guys, did you notice we need more cookies? Guys, when were these cookies put out? Guys, we use the red twisty instead of the silver. I don't want the silver or the red. That's Christmas. Well, we couldn't find them. Well, let me know when I'll order them. Take these away and change the twisties. Like stuff like that. I mean, I know it's crazy, but I am just constantly, I have my eye on 
everything. Yeah. And I listen and I pay attention and I am always on the internet. I'm always looking at better ways to do things. You just have to pay attention and you have to be present. You have to. What I think is so interesting, too, what you're just talking about kind of speaks to something that you have on, I think, your Twitter profile, which says you are unlikely to apologize. I'll never apologize. <laughs> I very, very rarely apologize because whatever I felt in that moment, that's how I felt. And I'm not going to apologize for that. If I'm wrong, I will say, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I was wrong. That's a normal apology. Yeah. But I'm not going to apologize for standing up for what I believe is right. And listen, I've said this a million times, even with the outdoor dining fiasco, my delivery is never great, but the meaning behind my delivery is always usually correct and sincere. You know, I I used to host NFL game day in Baltimore. I mean, (laughs) I'm sorry. That's where I come from. I've read that you don't allow your team to call you chef. Ever. Why not? Because I don't want to feel superior to them. I think we're a team. Yeah. I don't think they should call me boss. I don't think they should call me chef. I think they should just call me Jen because I'm you. All of the people who work for me, I know everything about them. What do they do? Where do they live? How old are they? What is their job? What do they want their job to be? Why are they here with me now? What what do they hope to do with the extra money? You know, what are their future goals? I know everything about them. And if I don't like you and you're not a good person, you can't work for me. Mm. You're here. Because I think you're a good human. Well, this show is all about next chapters. And you have managed to create an amazing second chapter for yourself. Maybe I should even call it your third, because you were in the fashion industry for a while. Third. Yes. So for anyone who's listening, can you give them one piece of advice if they want to make a shift in their life like this? I would just say life is way too short to be unhappy. I know so many people who hate their jobs. I'm like, well, quit. And they'll go, I won't have money. And I said, you'll find a way. So many people are hiring. Like I have people that work in my gelato shop. I have a teacher. I have a dental technician. And I have somebody who works in insurance. And they just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And they're trying to figure it out. But they're happier making coffee, scooping gelato, and having human interaction with kind people instead of a boss breathing down their neck, going into the office every day, doing a job they don't want to do. And and it's okay to quit your day job. It's totally fine. You can take some time away from that horrible, you know, nine to five and figure it out. Yeah. And I just think if you don't take a chance, you'll always look back and say, well, what if and what if, you know, I mean, when I moved to New York City, everyone was like, oh, we give her six months. She'll be back with her tail between her legs. We give her six months. Well, I lasted 12 years (laughs) and you literally had to like drag me out of New York City, but I got the job in Baltimore. And I always said to myself, Boston's not going anywhere. You can always go back. Yeah. Don't be afraid to try new things because you only live once. That's my advice. Well, I love that advice from someone like myself who's now in her fourth chapter as well. Yeah. see? Uh, See, you know, you just have to be willing to try. Hey, folks, if you want to learn more about Jen's restaurant table or her other establishments, just go to tableboston.com. And I have to admit, when I was looking at the photos of the food on your menu, I was salivating. So I can't wait to try it at some point in time. Oh, just let me know. I will. There's an Italian food quote that goes something like this. The people who give you their food give you their heart. Jen, thank you for not only sharing your food with us, 
but also sharing your heart today. Thank you. You're so sweet. And thanks to all of you for listening. May Jen's story be a reminder to all of us. Follow your passion. Take that chance because that is living your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.